Scripture reading this morning is going to be from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're reading verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and variety, uh, various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and distributed them according to his will. Good morning. I was at the first service, obviously, and it was a joy, and it's, it's still an equal joy to be with you this morning. I, I said to somebody that uh, the singing is so much better when it's not just Jordan and I uh, here in the building. It's wonderful to be together as God's people. You know, for the last 10 weeks or so, our families have been gathering each night at 8 o'clock, and we've been praying for just this thing. We've been praying that God's people could be together again, that we could worship together. We serve a God who answers prayer, don't we? And we're thankful to him for blessing us with this opportunity and this occasion. We want to give honor and glory to him. A couple of things before we start the lesson this morning. In the first place, I want to mention, thank you so much for abiding by and listening to and adhering to the guidelines that our elders have set forth for our meeting together. Thank you for following their recommendations. You know, we've taught and believed and practiced for years as God's people that elders have the authority and the right in matters of judgment to make decisions. And our elders have really, really been heavily involved in planning and, and, and thinking about what a service would look like. And they're trying to do their very best with wisdom to keep everybody as safe as they possibly can. And if we really believe that they have authority in matters of judgment, then we're going to continue to listen to what they recommend and to abide by those things without any kind of, of, of pushback or anything along those lines. And, and thank you so much for doing just that. I know you'll continue to do so. In the second place, I have realized even more than I maybe did before over the last several weeks how blessed I am not only to work with such a good and godly eldership and the deacons that are among us, but, but also to be able to, to work with Jordan Moore and with Daniel Mata. And for our first Sunday back after a lengthy absence from one another, what we're doing this morning is all three of us are preaching the same sermon at the same time. So the lesson this morning has six points. I'm going to preach three of them. Jordan Moore is gonna preach the other three and Daniel Mata is translating all this into Spanish in real time. And so that's the way the lesson's going to go this morning. It's been a blessing and a joy to work with these two men. We've done some, um, some things that we never thought we'd have to do as gospel preachers over the last several weeks. And uh, I'm thankful to them. I'm thankful that Jordan has his talents and it, it keeps me from doing videos that make me look like I'm Osama bin Laden or somebody like that. Um, he's, he's really, really talented and I'm, I'm appreciative of, of him. And, I'm especially appreciative of how hard Daniel Mata has been working. Uh, if you don't know, he's been broadcasting live every single night at eight o'clock and, uh, and doing devotional studies and
and Bible studies with the uh, Spanish-speaking congregation. We're especially thankful for Daniel and his, his work in that area. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the Hebrews writer was concerned that people were going to leave the Lord. He was concerned that they were going to abandon their faith. And he challenged them to listen even more closely to the things that they'd heard, to listen to and pay attention to God's word. And then he says in verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I've always been fascinated by that phrase, such a great salvation. It's as if he's saying, you have the most precious gift imaginable. How can you possibly despise it? How can you possibly abandon it? We need to think about the greatness of salvation. The word salvation or to be saved is found over 524 times in your Bible. 190 times in the New Testament alone do you find the word saved or salvation or savior. Salvation truly is the fundamental message of the Bible that God wants to save you and he wants to save you so that he can be glorified and all of that happens through Jesus Christ. There are six considerations this morning that help us to think about the greatness of salvation. What does it mean when we talk about our great salvation? Why is it called great? In the first place this morning, salvation is called great because it is the greatest yearning ever expressed. Over the past several weeks, we've been yearning for a time when we could gather together. And even now we yearn for a time when we can freely hug one another, shake one another's hand, greet one another as we're accustomed to. We long for that. But as much as we long for those things, even more, God has longed from eternity past to save people from their sins. God is the one who yearns for salvation. And it's a tragedy that many people don't have that same desire. God yearns to save people. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God desires, he yearns for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants that for you, even now, even today, that you could be saved, that you could come to know the truth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. In other words, he hasn't forgotten what he's promised to do. Why is he still not returning? Why does the Lord not come? And why has he not come to this point? Because he is long-suffering toward us, the Bible says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God longs for people to be saved. He longs for you to have a relationship with him. Because that's true, what has God done? In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, he warns us, be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. He instructs us, Psalm 119, verses 166 and 167. The psalmist said, I desire your salvation, therefore I obey, I do your commandments, O Lord. God not only instructs us, but he gives that which is required for our salvation. For God so loved the world, because he loved the world to such a degree, he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God longs for you to be saved so much that he reveals the truth to us. He has given us his word. He has given us the message that we need in order to know what, it need, what we need to do to be saved. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, the Bible speaks of those who love the truth and so are saved. And God waits patiently for you and me. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, he described his own character and he said, I am long-suffering, I am slow to anger, I am merciful, I am compassionate. We serve a God and we stand before a God who yearns for our salvation. It is the greatest yearning ever expressed. I want you to reach back in the files of your mind and think about maybe the, the greatest promise that you have ever made, the greatest promise that you have ever made, the biggest one anyway. When you think about the biggest promise that you might have made, it may be the first thing that comes to your mind is the mortgage that you have. It's the biggest one financially that you have made, perhaps promising to pay back thousands and thousands of dollars. Perhaps maybe the most important promise that you've ever made, the biggest one in, in importance, is when maybe you said, I do, to your spouse. Having considered that, what is the biggest promise that any, anyone has ever made to you? Right now we're in the middle of, of the election season, campaign season, and there's all kinds of promises that are being made, most of which never come true. But there's a lot of big promises that are made. And as we considered before, perhaps the biggest promise, most important promise that ever was made to you personally was when your spouse said, I do. But having considered all of that, consider that the biggest promise ever made, that is the greatest promise ever made to you, is the promise of salvation. In fact, it is the greatest promise that has ever been made, that has ever been made. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter number 2, when Peter was preaching that first gospel sermon, he recalled and referenced back to the prophet Joel, in which the Lord was speaking and the Lord said this, It shall come to pass... That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Particularly thinking about towards the future from when this prophecy was made. That not only would the Jews be able to be part of God's Israel. But eventually that the Gentiles could be part of spiritual Israel, the church. You and I are part of that collective body that could call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It doesn't mean that all you have to do is just simply say, Lord, save me, and that automatically, that, that, that is what takes place, that you're automatically saved just by saying those words. But more specifically, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord in the way that God desires for us to call upon him and to do the things that he expects of us, that anyone who does that can be saved. Notice that first part. It shall come to pass. It shall come to pass. That's a promise that God made. God promised salvation to all of mankind, to anyone who would call upon his name. It's the greatest promise ever made, number one, because it's the most valuable of all time. It's the most valuable of all time. No other promise can compare, and no other promise has implications that are of equal weight to this promise. It is the most valuable promise of all time. It's the greatest promise ever made because of who made the promise. It's a pretty special thing when someone makes a promise to you. They, they are 
asking that you would trust them and they are committing something to you. But think about the fact that the God of heaven, the God of the universe, has made you and I a promise. That's pretty special. It makes it the greatest promise ever made because of who made the promise? The God of heaven. It's the greatest promise ever made because of how trustworthy it is. Because of how trustworthy it is. You think about some of the promises that are made. A lot of them are, are empty. They're vain. They never come to pass, but not God's promise. We think about 2 Peter chapter number 3 in which God's promises stand fast and sure that he is the most reliable person, the most reliable being to ever exist. And we think about the fact that God cannot lie, Titus chapter 1 and verse number 2. If God makes a promise, it will stand and we can trust in it. So it's the greatest promise because it's the most trustworthy and it's the greatest promise because of what it costs to guarantee some promises don't cost very much. Some promises are just words, but not this promise. This promise costs more than any other promise in all of history. In order to guarantee this promise, it cost God his only begotten son, John chapter 3, verse 16. It cost Jesus his blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It's the most costly promise that has ever been. Consider that God purposed salvation. From the very beginning of time, God desired salvation. It wasn't something that he was forced to do. It was something that he wanted to do. His original intent was, was that all of mankind would, would reign or dwell in the garden. But God knew that eventually man would sin. And so he purposed it from the very beginning in eternity wasn't something that he just accidentally happened upon or, or did as a secondary plan, though that was not what he originally desired. Ultimately, God planned this and that he purposed it from the very beginning. He planned its accomplishment, Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 11. God devised the plan. He wanted it to happen, but he took the initiative to devise it and to orchestrate it into existence. God promised it to men. It seems redundant to say this again in the, in the sense that we're considering the fact that it's the greatest promise ever made. But God promised it to men. Have you ever thought about that? God could have orchestrated the plan and, and desired this plan, but he didn't have to tell us. He could, have, he could have held out on us in case he wanted to change his mind. He could have decided to keep us in the dark, but he didn't. Instead, he gave this promise to us. And finally... He provided for it according to his promise. You know, God delivered on this promise. Some people back out on promises they make. Some people renege. Some people change their mind. Not God. God provided for the lamb, for us the lamb that was needed and kept his end of the promise. It truly is the greatest promise that has ever been made. With a lot of extra time on our hands, a lot of us have been binge-watching various shows. ESPN has a really interesting documentary about the Chicago Bulls from the 1990s, and especially it focuses on Michael Jordan. And one of the things about that documentary that has been impactful to me is how much Michael Jordan desired greatness. He wanted to be known as the greatest basketball player who has ever lived. And as far as we can ascertain, he's accomplished that. 
He wanted the title, thank you for the amen. He wanted the title of being the greatest. But you know, when you stop and think about that in the grand scheme of things, the greatest basketball player on the planet, well, that might be a title that a lot of people are familiar with and maybe even a lot of people would amen, but it's not the greatest title that's ever been worn. I would argue this morning that salvation is the greatest title ever worn. Jesus was known by many names. He was known as King. He is known as Messiah. He is known as the Prince of Peace. He is known as a wonderful counselor. But the greatest title ever worn is the title Savior. One who saves people from their sins. He is the only one who is qualified to wear that name. Prophecy described what Jesus was going to do. Truly you are God, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 45, verse 15, who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. God's saying to the Israelites, I'm going to send a servant and he's going to be your Savior one day. And then when prophecies began to come to Mary and Joseph as Mary conceived a child, the Bible says in Matthew 1, verse 21, that Joseph was told, your wife, your wife-to-be is going to bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And the name Jesus literally means God saves. And the reason why you're going to call his name Jesus is because he will save people from their sins. So every time we say the name Jesus, the title of Savior is being applied to him and what he's done. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angel told Mary specifically, there is born, or excuse me, told the, the shepherds, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's his title. He is Christ. He is the Savior, the Bible teaches. After his resurrection and his ascension, the apostles began to preach about what Jesus has done. And they said things like this in Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God has exalted him to his right hand to be prince, that's a ruler, and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus ascended into heaven and right now reigns at the right hand of God as our savior. That is his title, and it's the greatest title ever worn. In 1 John 4 and verse 14, John writes, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. When we stop and think about titles that people have worn, president, emperor, ruler, greatest basketball player of all time, all of those pale and fade in comparison to the greatest title ever worn, Savior. Jesus wears the greatest title. Over the years, there have been a number of iconic newspaper headlines. Iconic newspaper headlines, of which several are on the screen behind me. You think about some of the emotions that are conjured when you look at these, these particular headlines, and you think about the, the, the fact that these particular events are some of the most important events, at least in American history. And when you think about these headlines, if tomorrow the headline broke that there was a cure for the coronavirus, undoubtedly we could add a fifth to this list here as one of the most iconic headlines in, in all of history. And though that would be a great headline, that would be something very important, it would be something we would be joyous over, it's not, it wouldn't be 
the greatest headline of all time. It wouldn't be the greatest news story of all time. It would be great, it would be wonderful, but there's never been a greater message proclaimed than the message of salvation. Salvation truly is the greatest message ever proclaimed. It's the greatest message ever proclaimed because it solves the greatest problem that there's ever been. Of course, coronavirus has been a, a monumental problem. It's been a problem perhaps greater than, than the world has ever faced, at least in our lifetime. But ultimately, the greatest problem that mankind has ever faced and ever will face is the problem of sin. And salvation is the solution to that problem. In Acts chapter number 16 and verse number 17, speaking of Paul and Silas, the damsel said, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. The concept of, of proclamation here is, is not just something of, of sharing a particular story with someone else that says, hey, did you hear about, did you, did you know about this? Rather, it's, it's more like, extra, extra, read all about it. It's a message that needs to be proclaimed to the masses. It's the most important, the greatest message of all time. And not only is salvation to be possessed, but it is to be proclaimed. As you think about these things, realize that the gospel is God's power to save. It is God's power to save. Look at that phrase. The gospel is God's power. You know, some people might think of, in regards to salvation about maybe if God were to save mankind, he might stretch forth his literal hand, if you will, in, into the, the realm of, of the earth and, and save people as, as people are about to face some sort of tragedy. He would save them. Or, or maybe he would enact some sort of law into the, the universe that would, would cause salvation for people. That, that would be his power. But think about this. God's power to save is the gospel. It's powerful. And it's the greatest message ever proclaimed. It's the greatest message because the implanted word is able to save souls. It's able to save souls. Yes, if, if a news headline broke tomorrow that the coronavirus had a cure or, or, or some sort of treatment that worked or, or, or a vaccine to solve the problem, it would be a great solution. It would be something to, to be rejoicing over, but it would only be saving something temporal and physical. The gospel, the greatest message ever proclaimed, the implanted word is able to save souls, that which is far more important than our physical well-being. And this message changes the world. In Acts chapter 17, verse number 6, it was spoken of Jason and some of his brethren in which they were accused of being those that turned the world upside down. Certainly when we think about this world, I don't think there's anybody in the world that would say there isn't something that should change in this world. But the only thing that changes anything that matters is the gospel, is this message you know, anytime there's something big in our life that we want to share, a lot of us go on social media and we, we start our post with, we're happy to announce, fill in the blame, maybe our engagement uh, to be married or a new pregnancy or, or maybe a new job. I'm happy to announce these things, to proclaim them to you. Realize that the most important message ever told is at your disposal to proclaim you have that opportunity, and you have that responsibility. Are you proclaiming the greatest message ever told?
Not only is salvation the greatest yearning ever expressed, not only is it the greatest promise ever made, and not only is it the greatest title ever worn, and not only is it the greatest message ever proclaimed, salvation is the greatest question ever asked. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 30, a Philippian jailer who was shocked by the fact that his prisoners had not escaped even though the jail door was left open, he asked Paul and Silas this question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I would suggest to you this morning that is the greatest question that you could ask. What must I do to be saved? Think about what's implied by that question. The jailer recognized that he needed salvation. Not everybody does. Not everybody thinks that God has a place in their lives. This man recognized he was lost and somebody needed to save him. Not only that, but he knew that an answer was available. Otherwise, he would not have asked the question. Paul and Silas, by their conduct and by their words and by their songs together in that dark dungeon, they had impressed evidently upon their fellow prisoners and even upon the jailer that these men knew the answer to that question. What must I do to be saved? The jailer asked this question and in doing so, he acknowledged that he knew he must do something. Paul and Silas did not respond to the jailer and say, there's nothing you must do to be saved. The answer is nothing at all. No, they told the Philippian jailer to believe. And later that night after hearing the gospel, he was baptized. He acknowledged that he must do something. And you and I, if we would have salvation that God provides, we must do something as well. The Philippian jailer asked this question, and in so doing, he admitted that Jesus is the one who could provide his salvation. The Bible says that Paul and Silas encouraged the jailer to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would be saved, both he and his household. And then they began to proclaim to him who Jesus was, what Jesus had done, and what Jesus offers to all mankind now. Salvation is the greatest question ever asked. The greatest yearning ever expressed, promise ever made, title ever worn, message ever proclaimed, question ever asked. And finally this morning, salvation is the greatest command ever given. The greatest command ever given in Acts chapter 2 verse 40 in the, the, the first gospel sermon at the day, on the day of Pentecost that we've referenced a number of times already, Peter said this, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There quite simply is not anything more important than what you do with your life in response to this command. There's not anything more important than what you do in your life than what you do in response to this command. That's what makes it the greatest command ever given. There are some great commands that have been given and important ones and ones that are necessary and required. But unless you follow this first command, the other ones are all for naught. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you following after this greatest command? Are you doing that which is expected of you in order to be obedient to this command? Some people might hear this phrase that salvation is the greatest command ever given, and they may ask the question, well, that doesn't add up with what I hear from some of the religious world about salvation. 
that salvation isn't something that I do. And to a degree, that's correct, that we can only be saved by Jesus. Jesus can only offer salvation to us. But there's a second part of that equation, and it's preached within Peter's gospel sermon, in which first he communicates God's great gift, that Christ was crucified in our place, verses 22 and 23. That Christ was raised and he conquered death, and that's what makes him the greatest Savior of all time, the only Savior. And he now sits exalted at God's right hand. But there's a second part to that equation, that's man's response to this promise that has been given to us. That is, in entrusting faith, one must repent of their sins and be baptized in his name. This was the answer that Peter gave in response to that greatest question that they asked in verse number 37. The same question that the jailer asked that that, uh, John talked about just a moment ago. What shall we do? What shall we do? Salvation is something God does for man as man responds in faithful obedience to God's will. So what will you do with that command this morning? It's a great promise that's been made to us. It's a great yearning. It's one that tugs at our heartstrings that that God has desired for all of mankind. It's something that moves us and, and wants us to do better. But unless we respond in obedient faith to the things that God has commanded in regards to salvation, those things are just nice stories for us. They're not anything that are of any consequence to us unless we respond to them. So I'd ask you this morning, are you doing that? If you're not a Christian, you haven't put Christ on in baptism, you're not responding to him in obedient faith, why not? God of heaven has promised you something far greater than anything else that anyone could ever give, the gift of salvation. If you are a Christian and you've started walking off the straight and narrow and you've ventured into the weeds and away from Christ himself. Come back to that greatest promise, that greatest command, that greatest yearning, the greatest message, the greatest title. Respond to the one that is wearing that greatest title this morning. If there's anything that we can do for you, we ask that you come as we stand and as we sing.